Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Ron. And this is Russell Mail from Sparks. This is the LSQ Podcast. Um, it's so great to meet you guys. Thanks so much for getting up and doing this with me. I, I have my latte here. I hope not to cry in it. <laughs> well, by, by the end, you might be crying, so... Thank you so much, Sparks, joining me to talk about their lives in music and also their new album, The Girl is Crying in Her Latte, the 26th studio album by Sparks. You know, I'm sure as was explained to you, you know, on this show, I focus on people's earliest kind of interactions with their creativity and the things that really instinctively grab them as a kid and how that kind of planted seeds that, you know, you can still hear in their music and see in their art. But I also do want to talk a bit about this new album because it's awesome and it's fresh in the world or will be when this comes out. And for instance, the title track, The Girl is Crying in Her Latte. I mean, for one thing, if you're a Sparks fan, you just see that phrase and you're like, yeah, that sounds like a Sparks song. You know, it's like you're like that. Oh, yeah, that's going to be a good one. The girl. Tell me more. Dot, dot, dot. I'm curious that song specifically. How did it begin? When did that phrase arrive, Ron, and and kind of how did the construction of it happen from there? Well, that was one of the songs that I think there was, you know, we kind of write in two different sort of ways. I mean, one, we kind of write in the more traditional way. We're sitting down at a keyboard and coming up with a song, but we also write just from sometimes from a track, like just something that kind of rhythmically is inspirational. I think the girl's crying in her latte was one of those. And as far as like where the lyrical idea comes from, I'm never really sure. I mean, I'm not a songwriter that kind of experiences something or sees something and says, I have to write a song about that. They, the ideas just kind of, kind of come to me when, you know, when I'm kind of not struggling to find the ideas. And, and so that was a case of that, but the, the image just of of kind of that kind of solitude and also just you know you mentioned the dot 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 i mean i like that where a title makes you wonder well what what is kind of behind the scenes of of this particular image and so it made it made a lot of sense and then it was really easy to kind of finish the song knowing that that was what the song was about and trying to work backwards and kind of elaborate on that theme. 
Sorry, I talked so long. But... No, no, no. That's awesome. <laughs> how much? How much of it is though? A just sort of. I, I ask this from the perspective of someone who loves words and phrases and just an uncanny expression. You know, which Sparks' catalog is full of so many uncanny expressions. And I wonder how often you're struck by a phrase that has a ring to it. It has an implied melody to it that's like something you want to save for later um, versus sitting in the moment with a kind of a concept or an idea or a feeling and then just kind of letting stuff pour out. I mean, I think we're less in the um, saving things for the future mode than actually just acting on ideas right when they're when they're there. Because kind of what's exciting for us is just coming up with something fresh. You know, a lot of people have asked us, like, do you have a, a stockpile of songs that you're you know waiting to do at some point and or bits of songs and we really we really don't because we kind of get excited about a new project and for us it's sort of what's exciting is working with a clean slate and you can just come up with anything at the time and sometimes things that we have have had that have been laying around you know they kind of like oh that's a from that period for better or worse you know and so but we would rather just kind of have something fresh just for our own kind of satisfaction, even if it's harder, you know, it's a lot easier to say, I'm going to take something from my stock pool of reject songs that I've been keeping around for the reject period. But we kind of like to think that we're always capable of coming up with something good and new at the time that we start out with making a new record. Again, with that title track to the new album, what tell me a bit more about what happened from there. Once the kind of skeleton of the song is there and you're like, this is a song where we're going to take it to completion with that song and with this body of work, where did you make, where did you make the music? We record now. I mean, the, the good thing that uh, we've had a lot of albums and had a lot of different ways of working and we've worked with great producers in the past with Tony Visconti, with Giorgio Moroder, with Todd Rundgren, with Muff Winwood, And we kind of through time, we learned from those people when we were really green, uh, greener, and they taught us a lot of tricks and things that, you know, that we've kind of retained. And then at just at a certain point, we started thinking, oh, we could have a little setup at my place. And, and, and then things kind of you know, escalated from there. And then we started working and producing our own records. But from the basis of having these really great mentors along the way that loved what we were doing both, you know, creatively, but also just in, in all sorts of ways, they just loved the the band and encouraged us, encouraged our eccentricities, I think. There's all of those, none of those people wanted to sand off the rough edges they the rough edges are what they really liked about the band and so we kind of kept that sort of attitude all along and just then became better both technically at recording ourselves and recording but also just um, better judges of you know you got to be really brutal about what you keep songs that you keep that that you think are good and then ones you think ooh, that one's not as good and you have to kind of just toss it aside and and so we you know have gotten better at better at that and that we think and and so we the you know the new album's not an exception and we uh we spent about a year on it and you know there was no one way of working on the album we have the the studio of my place so sometimes when if ron's not here i can be noodling around with just 
stuff, not even knowing what it's going to be. And then, and on some of the tracks, and Ron took those noodling bits and then, you know, added a melody line to it that wasn't there and then and lyrics to it that weren't there. And then the other case uh, type of writing was Ron coming up with songs on his own, just tr- more in a more traditional way uh, and then just presenting it. And the song has got a structure already and maybe in the recording process, elements of that might change but there's something to work with and the other way is there's you're there's nothing to work with and you're kind of saying but it, I like how this sounds so let's pursue it um, so those are the kind of different ways we work it's interesting when you talk about those earlier albums where there was a producer that you were excited to work with Marota for instance and they that I would assume and I'd love to know more about this that when you were younger or earlier in your catalog this sense that someone who would be a sounding board, pardon the expression, for saying, yeah, you're on, you're there, was a, what felt more necessary than now, where you're like, you know what, we don't actually need another person to say that what we're that we're on the right track. We kind of were we know we 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 got this. No, absolutely. We those those people were all people that we we needed to to learn, you know, to you hate to say learn because it's not it that isn't what it was but it was just there was something about them that we needed that was missing from what we knew as far as making records i mean obviously from from todd rungan we 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 were making just these home demos with our guitar person earl mankey just in his apartment on a little reel to reel the three of us but how do you make a record you know and so todd rungan was able to kind of translate the feeling that we had on that record kind of the uh, lack of glossiness in a way but you know making it into a a record and and the other people like with Georgia Moroder just the whole kind of idea of electronics was something that we had really no experience with and he he really showed us you know how you how you do all those things and and with Tony just a lot of the things with orchestrations and all were really something that we picked up on so you know we kind of picked up on all those kind of musical ways of kind of other other means of incorporating things into our songs that weren't just just a traditional band format even though we love playing in that way as well but just to have all those tools available to us now we kind of feel that we don't really need those people because we've kind of absorbed what they what they had to offer and and are able to do it this way and also just working by ourselves we can kind of make fools of ourselves without anybody else knowing about it and it's it's intimidating being in a studio with producers and a you know clock on the wall knowing how expensive this is all being but we we can afford to take chances and just waste a day or two and if nothing happens, all it is is just wasted time. And and uh, but we, you know, we've come up with things when we're doing silly things along the way that that are kind kind of evolve into interesting songs. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, I think you know, so I'm, I imagine at some point there's like you don't an extra opinion as well informed and tasty as it is can actually be counterproductive because then that's in your head and you're thinking, oh, maybe they've got something and you're, it's deviating you in, in ways that 
make it feel more high stakes. Like when there's a clock ticking, the stakes feel really high, but in a way, I think part of the beauty, you know, from, from what I infer from sparks, part of the beauty is the instinct leading and not the raising the stakes artificially high for yourselves, where it's just like, it's, it's about making what feels honest. It's not about making anything that's like correct by the standards of how long it took or another person in the room who might say, that's the spark song you should be making right now. And I, I'd love to use that as a, as a way to go back to even before Rundgren and, and Mankey to the earlier days when the first occasions when the two of you remember having this thing that you like what you do now where there's no one watching and you just have free reign to be silly and make something up. Like what would have been the earliest things you just spent lots of time making up together? The earliest record was recording, uh, it was a recording. We got a, a little disc. They used to have these things and I'm sure they had them everywhere, but in LA where you could go in and for rent one hour worth of time and you come out of the place with, a, with an actual uh, vinyl disc of your, of your recording. And so we, we did a song called um, Computer Girl, again, ahead of its time, talking about computers way back before computers were uh, a home item. And, uh, you know, that was probably the first thing we, we ever did. And it's, you know, it's not a masterpiece. I like probably the lyrics are probably the, the best part about it because it was speaking about something that, you know, a uh, guy falling in love with this uh, computer. And we didn't even know what, what computers were at the time, I think. So, you know, we, we messed, you know, messed around. We, and like a lot of our pop music education came from just, we were, huge Anglophiles. And so every kind of British band that came to Los Angeles that time, we were, you know, in the front row, if we could be, because we were just, we were so in awe of, of that style of music and presentation, as opposed to what was kind of more organically happening in LA. And we, we just kind of gravitated more to bands with, that were image and personality. And for us, lyrics of the style that British bands were doing the best people like, you know, Ray Davis, the, the kinks and were doing that, that, those sort of lyrics and, and Townsend with uh, the period, early period of who, where he's, you know, writing about tattoos and, and greyhound dogs at the racetrack and stuff for us, those sorts of lyrics were really charming and cool and were different than people were writing about in Laurel Canyon here. And so, so, um, you know, that our early musical education kind of came from just watching those bands and going, we want to do that someday. And fortunately we got this crazy, uh, offer after the first two albums that we had done with Todd Rundgren and his company, that we got this offer to go to England and relocate just the two of us because they liked, Ron's songwriting slant and they liked the vocals and they liked our aesthetic. And so Muff Winwood said, come to the UK and we'll Island records would like to do work with you guys. And, you know, and so we, our dream kind of came through to actually, now we were actually could be an English band. So it couldn't have, couldn't have gotten any better. So truly before Computer Girl, you guys never just wrote something together, like just a little kid, car, you know, comic strip or a story, or was that your first collaboration ever? Yeah, because I think, you know, early on, you know, we, I mean, at the beginning, I, 
even though I took piano lessons when I was really, really young, but I started, you know, when I was a teenager, just playing electric guitar. And, and so, but the only songs I could play were like things like really basic, like Gloria or, you know, or Louie Louie or, or things like that. So, you know, the first, the first things we did were the only things that we could play. They really weren't things that we, we wrote and you know but once once we started writing for some reason they they didn't sound at all like the bands we were trying to emulate and so yeah i'd love to know a bit more about this this era when you're little kids and you're going to see these bands and you know i know for instance as it comes up in in the sparks brothers documentary that your mom took you to see the beatles twice including schlepping you all the way to vegas which is next level. I mean, truly. (laughs) I mean, the fact that it's the Beatles, you know what I mean? In a way you're like, I I don't want to say right place, right time guys or whatever, (laughs) but you know, so any mother that drives a child out of state or anywhere to see a a rock and roll or popular music concert, bless, bless. But twice she took these guys to see the Beatles, including driving all the way from LA to Vegas. So young people who may be listening, Tell your mothers that story when they don't want to drive yeah. you out of state for a concert. Yeah, or also just get another mother. You know, get another mother. So yeah, so to, like, did you see, um, did you see the Kinks or the Who in concert? And tell me about the where and and how that felt. Yeah, we we would see like everybody. We saw the first performance, I think, in in Los Angeles of Led Zeppelin in in Pasadena um, at this place called the Rose Palace. It was just like a a giant um, warehouse sort of. And, you know, it was, it was pretty phenomenal. And we would always go to the uh, Shrine Auditorium in Los Angeles where they had these concerts that were three acts on the bill always. They were sort of emulating the San Francisco dance, the, you know, dance kind of concerts that were going on at that time, but they had them in LA as well. And they would have three acts and, you'd, you know, like you'd see, Pink Floyd playing. That was one of their first times coming to LA. But then, you know, second bill is like, I think it was Jeff Beck or something. Or Rod, was it? Yeah, it was Jeff Beck with Rod Stewart as the lead singer, I think, at the at the time. And then, you know, third act would be somebody, you know, um, that was like Blue Cheer or something from San Francisco. So it's like the third act is somebody that you would, you know, you would love to see on their, on their own. And so, it, you know, it was a really amazing time and you know that we also both went to ucla here and so it had a really vibrant concert uh thing that wasn't a big deal they weren't these huge concerts but we saw Jimi hendrix at a hall in damn at, at ucla yeah and he it was just one of those you know rectangular nondescript uh rec halls and said, oh, this guy Jimi hendrix is gonna play here so we we had to go see him and then he showed up late i remember uh for some reason like at that time it didn't matter if you you know you walk on stage an hour late there you don't need to give a a reason or anything and he would he just showed up and i remember him plugging in his guitar and all of a sudden it's just feeding back you know like and he's out of control but and it was just uh extraordinary we saw procol harem there too at ucla you know, there were also like a lot of those kind of garage band, like like the Sandells and things that we saw there. We, you know, we always loved that kind of music as well. And and can, Canned Heat and 
things like that. And so it was a really, you know, everything was kind of equal at that at that time. And, you know, just just to know, I mean, it was so strange to think back where things weren't so kind of enormous, you know, like like you could see Jimi Hendrix playing on a little stage in at a, at a place like that. And it kind of was a different way of judging bands like every band was oh that's that's cool you know but it wasn't like you know i've got to get online and uh join a fan club to get a number and all all those sorts of things i have to move my money to a specific bank yeah in order to get a ticket to see my favorite band no, exactly exactly <laughs> so it, it it was everything was a, a little bit easier that way yeah, I mean, obviously, you you can't have known, you know, I in the from the twenty twenty three perspective, I want to say, did you know when you saw Jimi Hendrix that it was Jimi fucking Hendrix? You no, you didn't know. It wasn't it wasn't apparent at the time. Um, but I I know also that you know that you guys were you know equally into sports and athletics as as kids and as teenagers before you went to college and started recording songs and stuff. But like when you were going to these shows, did it feel was there a special different feeling? that you can looking back say yeah going to, going to see music before you ever wrote a song it it was in its own category of heart medicine or something of like just just really just like what the fuck is this this is my thing well i mean it it came across to us that way but not in the sense of us wanting to really do it for uh i hate to use the term a living but a living you know we we were kind of studying for other other fields. I was trying to be a graphic designer. And so so all even though these things really kind of hit me in just this really massive way, much more than graphic design ever did, uh, it never kind of occurred to me that that's something you could actually do and and kind of put aside everything else. And, you know, I at UCLA, I was really fortunate because we were, when we first started recording, um, I had a professor and maybe maybe he meant it as a critique of what I was as a graphic designer, but it was actually good. He said, you know, you really shouldn't, you shouldn't be doing this. You should just be a musician. You know, it's like, and so uh, he probably just thought I sucked as a graphic designer and thought, he said, what's your plan B? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but to have plan B being, you know, a, a rock musician is not exactly the most sage advice for anybody, I think. But in any case, it worked. It it turned out that way. It never it never was the direction. And when we saw those bands, it was really inspirational in a in just in a general way, but never, never like. And obviously, you know, as a dream, oh, I would love to be like the move or you know or the beach boys or wh whoever it was but it wasn't like you were you were saying i'm going to do that you know and and it, at a certain point it kind of morphed into that yeah i'm curious as the as you started writing more music and the early on the way that the that process worked we've talked a bit about how it worked for the girls crying in her latte but back when early on it was a process where ron you're you're starting on lyrics on your own and the songs are evolving from there. Am I understanding correctly that that was? Well, I mean, in general, even from the very beginning, we we started with the music and 
and also just the writing process was a much more democratic situation at the beginning everybody kind of contributed right and you were figuring out how to how to write a spark song and how to I, i'm i i'd love to hear a bit separately from you about you know ron as a writer and russell you as a singer like did you have a phase where you were like okay i'm doing this now and what is my technique or like you know because it's yeah you're both so good at 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 what you do and i i imagine that there is a period of refinement or of being like okay how am i gonna level up in this craft yeah i mean i think i mean i think part of the reason we sound the way we do is because we don't ever get that analytical about the process and there's just something inherent in what we do because we had those two albums out in the states the ones that todd rundgren produced the first one and then his company was involved at Bearsville with the second one as well, Woofer and Tweeter's Clothing. But then we got that offer that I mentioned to go to England with Island. And so then all of a sudden we had no material and Island, you know, bought essentially a concept and they, and then, you know, Ron was writing one day. He wrote, he went once a week, I think it was to our, uh, like our parents had a, a little crappy piano. They were living in England at the time and just, one day came up this song the this town ain't big enough for both of us with that melody writing it on a keyboard and he in that and he wasn't singing it he just wrote that exactly how it sounds now that that part on the on the piano and so we didn't question it and he just said okay here's a thing you know Try, just sing this, you know, you sing this. That's where we became more of the dictatorship from the democracy, which he spoke about, the author, authoritarianism entered Sparks. He's like, I've got this mustache. I need to, uh, I need to act accordingly. That's a whole other story. Yeah, all, all democracies die at a certain point. So, you know. Fair, fair. <laughs> and so, yeah, he the, he had that song and, and it, we didn't question it at all, right? And other than it was, God damn, that's really hard to sing because it kind of goes all over the map. And just also it was written in a key that was really high um, for me to sing in. But we didn't even know the concept of, you know, transposing. You can shift things down or up at will if you know what you're doing. <laughs> um, but we just it was that written in that key. And so obviously that's the key it's going to be sung in uh, for Sparks. And um and it turned out it was high singing, but so that kind of the, the singing style was kind of evolving just by chance with that sort of way that Ron's songs were being written. And it just turned out a lot of them were kind of high singing and falsetto stuff. And I never knew I was a falsetto singer or could sing falsetto like that. Cause like early on, like Ron mentioned with some of the early songs we were doing covers of Gloria and, you know, satisfaction or something, and it's all singing pretty low, you know, um, the singing, but then all of a sudden songs like This Town and, you know, uh, Equator are coming up and there are these melodies that are in the stratosphere somewhere. And, and I just kind of did it. And so that's stylistically how the vocals were kind of evolving. And it just became a thing that we didn't discuss it at all. It just, it just was. And Ron, as a, as a writer, um, did you, you know, was there a phase where you got into more draft or, or delving into reading authors you hadn't read before, kind of discovering, yeah, did you do any sort of 
deep analysis uh, or refinement? Not me, no. <laughs> you you mean as far as like trying to develop something that would that would kind of lend itself to more to lyrical? I guess I just mean like I guess I just mean as as someone who who is as focused on words and phraseology and precision and like that, that kind of imagery. I wonder if you ever had a sort of a period of voracious reading or of kind of, of, of sort of, uh, yeah. yeah, it's, it sounds like what you're saying. And I'm not, and I don't certainly don't mean to imply that analyzing what you're doing a lot is the, is a correct way. I'm just always so curious about it because yeah. I t- sometimes am surprised by a let that layer of like schooling yourself that artists may go through at certain phases where they're like, you know what, I need a little more of something, you know, in the equation. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, when, when I was at UCLA, I took a, I mean, this sounds pretentious, but just, you know, I took a, a Shakespeare class and I really hated it and I did really poorly at it. But then, you know, at, at, at a certain point, I, I decided there was one summer where, the weather was really nice, and so I decided to read all all of Shakespeare's plays during that that time, and and then I realized, gee, now now I really, I, I kind of get get this, you know, and 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 so it, I I really enjoy uh, words, even though you know for us the music has to come first, and and that has to be strong it isn't that we're trying to uh incorporate music into into some kind of poetry or something like that but i really i really enjoy words and so to sit there that whole summer and kind of go through all the shakespeare plays you know it gave it gave me a, a sense of of accomplishment in some way and i i don't know whether it carried over into any anything lyrically in our songs but but you kind of see, I mean, when you when you listen to things or read things that that are kind of beyond what you can do, it kind of it kind of opens up just even the the possibilities of things that are are not your normal way of of working. And so I I that was I think that was kind of a transformational time for me. I think both of us too like films a lot and I think and early on we both saw a lot of films and especially foreign films that were coming through at that time when we were students at UCLA and so even though you can't pinpoint something specific maybe again things were being absorbed you know by going to see you know Truffaut films or Godard or Fellini or you know Kurosawa or uh, Antonioni you know those things kind of really seeped into our veins and and maybe just in some way that helped in some oblique way helped to uh, inform some of the writing and just style of what sparks is and what about like the the live perform like what was the very first time you guys ever played a show tell me tell me what that was like yeah i mean we i mean there's the the early early things you know we'd play at a you know pizza parlor and yeah i want to know about the pizza parlor <laughs> that's like uh i don't even know if that's worth talking about <laughs> the most humiliating <laughs> experience that we ever had but then we you know we we played the whiskey a lot really early on the whiskey go in la and so you know, we, we always thought that performance, you know, the, the bands that we like, like I'd mentioned earlier, all the 
a lot of the British bands, they were, you know, incorporating, it was like a show kind of more and being stylish and having something more than just good music and good lyrics were important. And so we kind of were of that school. And so we, even early on, we did a show at, at the Whiskey A Go-Go. And so we had this one song called Slow Boat. And so we made a, you know, a paper mache, this giant paper mache uh, boat with, you know, had chicken wire as the frame, kind of like a rose parade float, but done a, you know, spinal tap size version of that. And, and, you know, and I singing that song, we had a roadie with, you know, we had a rope and the roadie pulled me across the stage to the boat, this little fake ocean liner came across the stage at the Whiskey Go-Go when I sang Slow Boat. And so we, we thought that was the coolest thing of all time, you know? And, and so those were the kind of things that we really enjoyed doing because we thought it was all, all important in kind of relaying what sort of people we were and what our personalities were and everything. So having a, 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 an ocean liner on stage in miniature at the Whiskey Go-Go, that was important to us. And the bands that we really, you know, ad- admired and and tried were, you know, were influenced by were bands where the people in the band had had a certain had character. There were there were individual characters in in the band. It wasn't like just this bland thing of it's just the music, man, and just it's like there's a kind of a story but it's not like a defined story like when when you go when you went to see the who there were those four characters there or and it it always kind of struck us that that was kind of the band that we wanted to be even though we didn't know you know how how to achieve that but we we did know that we didn't want to be just kind of one of those more the the bands that were kind of pushing out that visual side that were kind of the most prevalent kind of bands in Los Angeles at the time. Yeah. I always, I always think about, I love bands where the members, you, they're sort of like cartoon superheroes, you know, where you're like that, they have, they have their different powers and you, know, one of my all time favorite bands is the strokes. And I've always felt that way about them that, you know, you're just like, okay, the visually, and, and as you say, Ron, it's not that there's any, it's, it's somewhat intangible. You couldn't really put a descriptor on it, but you're like, each one has their power. That's their special magical power. And you're like, Ooh, it's there. And, and everyone has favorites because everyone has their different powers. Then you think about like the grunge era or shoegaze even, or something like that, where there's so much you can't even see the people. You're not sure what they look like, which I love that shit as well. No, don't get me wrong. But so is that what kind of informed, like knowing that that's what you were doing, uh, a confidence early on about what you, about performing? Like, did you feel, did you feel confident those early shows when you're with the paper mache boat? Or was there like a stage fright initially before you found your true stance? Well, it was like, no, it was, it was like fear that of like going on stage in a, in a in a boat when you're playing with uh i don't know it's, it's really these bands that probably no one will ever know but have ever heard about but like little feet where it was this kind of in quotes uh you know the honest in an honest thing that 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 type of music you know they're great musicians and all that for sure but that that's honesty and that you know if you have a presentation where you go across the stage in a boat that that's like kind of there's something 
you know, it's not, not honest music, you know, it can't be because there's a show too. So I think it was kind of, you know, also like being petrified to, to, to dare to do something like that on stage, but we just enjoyed it. And then obviously we didn't have boats on stage anymore after, after that. But I think what, what evolved kind of in a way is just that our personalities, like you were just mentioning about you liking, you know, the individual personalities that people have on stage and the bands that you like that kind of evolved with sparks as well, where, you know, Ron has his, specific thing whatever that is and that I have my specific thing and and those kind of became more pronounced in a certain way through you know in time whether it was us making them more pronounced or it's just people seeing it as being more pronounced I don't know but those evolved as you're getting ready to start the you know tour phase for this new album which do you prefer playing shows when you're out on the road or the writing and recording well, I mean, the, the performing side is kind of, I mean, it's, it's certainly not easy, but it, you at least know what, what the parameters are of performing. And so in that way, it's really fun and you can kind of, you know what has to be done, but the writing process and recording process, you don't have any clue what needs to be done other than you better come up with something incredible or you're in trouble. But but so the, the two things are so so different in in those kind of ways. I mean, obviously you have to give a good performance too, or you feel obligated, you want to give a good performance, but you kind of know what has to be done. And then, so that's why the recording thing is kind of, is also so fun, even though it's like also really intangible as to God, we're starting with nothing and we've got to create something. And what if we fail, you know? Yeah, both opportunities for momentary adrenaline bursts, right? Where you're just like, oh, God. And then you're like, oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I say every every time before I go on stage every night. You're kind of going, oh, my God, I signed on to do this, to be have to stand in front of several thousand people who are going to stare at you for two hours and uh, analyze your every move. That That's frightening. But I stand up for it. Yeah, it's that high wire thing of where it's scary, but you're. But once you've got it, then then it's a uh, yeah, it's validating, it's affirming, it's and obviously you, you know, you guys keep doing it and have never stopped doing it. And you know, I wonder if at moments like this, when there's an album about to come out and a big you know global tour about to start, you know, if you if these are moments when you when you zoom out and you think you know and you sort of reflect on. Uh, you know, phases or what phase you're in of the thing. And, and so from the 2023 perspective, what would you say currently are the songs you're most excited to revisit? What are some of the older tunes that feel very exciting to be taking on tour in 2023? Yeah, I guess not to spoil the fun for people that to, to discover and go, Oh my God, they're doing that song. Maybe I won't, say too much specifically but what what i can say is that we we learned on the last tour that with sparks now where in the past we would always kind of have this these hesitations sort of like well we better do songs that you know we know people are going to connect with and not risk taking a you know the deep dive on some of the the albums and more obscure tracks we kind of learned more with the last tour and and going to follow through with that same 
mindset that we can we want to do certain songs too that people have never heard from us before from our our catalog of songs from and from albums that maybe aren't the ones that you go oh that's the you know whatever your your golden era might be of sparks your vision of what that is to to pick songs that are from that are more obscure and we found with the last tour even that those songs were getting really strong reaction and people really appreciated that they were getting to hear this song that wasn't an obvious like song that you have to do and so with that in mind we've kind of continued with that and it also gets harder and harder to make a song um set list because we have now this is the 26th album and so if you figure our sets usually end up being around 22 songs something like that is a seems to be about the right amount before we collapse and and then or we've overstayed our welcome with the audience or whatever for whatever reasons but and so if you figure there's 26 albums and only 22 maybe songs around that amount some albums are going to get short change so it's having to figure out a balance of what you want to include and then some some albums you go oh god we have to do got to do two from that album for whatever reason so that then takes away another album's place so it's a it's a juggling act but it's it's also really fun now in this at this period because uh it helped so much with edgar wright's documentary where he kind of stressed that he really felt that all of the periods of sparks were equally valid even if you the period wasn't as commercially successful that that it wasn't the fault of the album in his opinion ever they he felt the creativity was always there and the the thinking, the mindset was always there. And there was just circumstances that were an album didn't click for whatever reason commercially. So we kind of now, because of that, we, we kind of sense that, you know, it's kind of fun to be able to do some of those more obscure periods live. And also there's some, a couple of songs I can think of just that were on albums and kind of there and people appreciated them. But then when we started doing them live, they took on this more anthemic kind of feel uh, that they they kind of really move the audience, in not, not just in a physical, but in an emotional way too. And it kind of went beyond what the album was. I mean, one, one is My Baby's Taking Me Home. It, it's always kind of uh, really been a highlight of the, sets and then even from the last album like the song like all that was kind of hidden on the album when we started doing it live it really became kind of more uh of an anthem in the good sense of the uh, term and so it's it's really interesting where you have a song and and it's kind of one thing when it's on an album but then live it takes on another meaning and becomes almost a highlight of of the live performance yeah, I mean, and in the streaming era where you sort of look at what your own most popular songs are, and of course there are some obvious ones in there, but then there are some that you're like, okay, interesting, y'all. Like, that's what you are picking from those albums, and they rise for a whole new context for whatever generation and their and their point of entry. And 
you know, I'm sure that must be fun. And I know that that also some of the people in your band now are are younger, more recent Sparks fans. Shout out to Evan Weiss, who's a buddy of mine okay. here in LA. Ooh. Wow. But but yeah, that's it's it's just cool to think, you know, we we're talking about the Hendrix example earlier that you know, you can't see it from your perspective, just this thing of where like whatever combination of songs you play is going to be epic and singular to the, you know, people who are in that moment in time there for it, you know, like you can't, you're, you can't analyze your own catalog from, you know, in an objective way because you've been experiencing it every minute of the way. And then some new person pops up and they're like, you know, which song? Yeah, no. Thanks, 2023, for letting us know. (laughs) Um, Thank you so much, guys, for getting together to do this. It was an honor to have you on the LSQ podcast. Thank you. Yeah, good talking with you. Pleasure to be here. The new Sparks album, The Girl is Crying in Her Latte, is out now, and they have a U.S. tour starting in late June. Get info at allsparks.com. And thanks again to Ron and Russell. That conversation was so sweet. And I'm Jenny LSQ. Thank you for listening to the LSQ Podcast, episode 90. And 91 is one of my favorite artists of all time, and also a very good friend, Jenny Lewis. I've been waiting for the perfect moment to have her in the series, and she's got this exciting new album called Joy Y'all coming out actually at the end of this week, so um, that will follow next week with a new LSQ episode with Lewis. And then later this month, to go along with his new solo album, Melodies on Hiatus, an episode with Strokes guitarist Albert Hammond Jr. as episode 92. You can find all of the episodes at JennyLSQ.com and on all of the platforms. And I'm on socials at JennyLSQ. Thanks again for listening. 